Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 396, air date October 27th, 2018. Is that today? Uh, with us is Shiva Ayadori. Ayadori, did I get Ayadurai. that right? I adore I. Shiva's fine, Dr. Shiva's fine. Okay. Yeah. And um and who is a candidate for the United States Senate, independent candidate. Um and this is an editorial board meeting that we have uh people in the room uh and we also have people on the phone with us um uh who are conferencing in uh editors from our sister Gatehouse Media newspapers. Uh thank you for joining us. Great, thank you uh, for having me. Pleasure to it's have an you. Honor here. To be here, yeah. And I know that we spoke to we spoke about a week or two ago about this and yeah. uh, and I had said we wanted to line up some things and I'm really glad that we were able to do so. So, um you're here today um and especially in the midst of a very strange situation where we have uh bombs showing up at uh the homes of Democrats. We have a caravan that uh, coming up from uh, Central America that is um, that is causing a great deal of stir, and you are running as an independent. Now you you started out as uh, as a Republican, and then made a decision to uh, run as an independent and got the signatures, the ten thousand signatures. To we actually got twenty thousand. You got twenty. Yeah, because you know you can't rely on getting ten. Mm-hmm. Because nearly 60%, for all sorts of reasons, the town hall mm-hmm. uh, certifiers uh, will throw away about 40% of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, can you talk about that? Uh, because uh, because I know that you and uh, your Republican opponent uh, is um, are, are both saying that you know who's closer to Trump and uh, to the populist uh, agenda that Mr. Trump has. So, so um, how is it that? How is it that you decided, instead of going through the Republican channels, that you decided to take this route uh, to get on the ballot? It's a good question. Um, look, in 1984, I've always been a political activist all my life because of my background, having come from India as a low-caste Indian. Uh, you know India has a caste system, uh, which means your destiny is determined by where you're born. So I was politicized as a five-year-old kid growing up in India, so I've always been very interested in politics. And one of the dynamics I figured out uh, when I came to MIT, I was a student activist, I made sure more poor whites, poor blacks, minorities came to MIT, was in that year is when Jesse Jackson, if you remember in 84, ran against Walter Mondale and Reagan. Anyone mm-hmm. over the age of 40 remembers this. And what you saw was a dynamics of something that I, I believe has occurred in political history uh, for thousands of years and even occurs now, is you have the concept of the establishment. Um, forget what label you want to put them parties, but those people want to keep things as they are. Then you have the concept of change agents, people who actually make change, be it the women's rights movement, uh, Susan B. Anthony, be it uh, the civil rights movement, um, uh, actual people whose names we do not even know um, and are not perfect. And then you have what are called the not so obvious establishment, where people uh, say that they want change, speak the words of hope, revolution, change, but actually exist to sucker people back into the establishment. And that's what Jesse Jackson did, if you remember. He uh, had built this movement called the Rainbow Movement, and at that uh, last minute, on the floor of the Democratic Convention, he gives all of his votes to Walter Mondale, preaching the lesser of two evils. And this recurrent, um, in many ways, I hate to use this word, but it's, it's, it's accurate, we're in a fascist model of two political parties thinking they own the American electorate, and that if you try to quote-unquote split them, uh, that's 
somehow sacrilegious is what's gone on in this country. And it's truly unfortunate, particularly unfortunate in a state like Massachusetts, where nearly 60% of the electorate is unenrolled independent. So that's my background, where I figured out that I had no really love for either party, that they were both part of the single machine, and it's been referred to as many words. Eisenhower called it the military-industrial complex. Fulbright called it the military-industrial-academic complex. Some people call it the deep state, etc. So I never voted, even though I was a naturalized citizen. However, in 2016, when I saw Donald Trump use that platform, which he was fortunate to have because he was in everyone's home with The Apprentice, and he essentially hijacked the Republican Party, and he was talking about the both parties he was exposing, and he was also exposing uh, what he called the fake news media, which many of us, you know, uh, I as a student of Noam Chomsky, have referred to that whole media as uh, a media that manufactures consent, which bounds democracy into very, very finite ways of thinking. So when Trump ran, I saw him as a, as a guy who's got four degrees from MIT, including my PhD in systems biology, who's a systems guy, as a disruptor. And in all um, uh, physics and in, in, in any understanding of systems, disruption is key to take a system from one state to another state. The simple example is you boil water, we go from water to vapor. It's two different systems. So I decided to register as a independent, unenrolled, and I voted for Trump. Um, I was invited to the inauguration. After I went there, I was moved by Trump's speech. And in February of 2017, I registered as a Republican. Now, in Massachusetts, to answer your question, Tony, about the process, to get on the ballot in either as a Democrat or Republican, by the way, I didn't care for either party. I could not compete on the Democrat side because Warren had monopolized that, but mm-hmm. I saw an opening on the Republican side. Um, and um, uh, when I ran, uh, in, by the way, in order to get on the ballot, you need to get 15% of the delegates who meet at the state convention, in fact, that was here in April mm-hmm. 2018, um, to vote for you, and then you needed to get um, 10,000 signatures, as you mentioned. Well, in order to get those 15%, you have to literally go to each one of the Republican town committees. There's around 350 in Massachusetts. And we had gone to 70 of them. We were getting standing ovations wherever we went because they'd never seen a compelling candidate like me. With all humility, a guy came from India with nothing, who went through the public school systems, who invented the first email system, came to MIT, didn't do one degree, not two, not three, but four degrees, including a PhD, started seven companies, and actually created thousands of jobs in Massachusetts. Um, What we recognized in the middle of that was Charlie Baker uh, had no interest in me. In fact, the Massachusetts GOP, after many months, uh, after one of my attorney's friends forced him, met with me, and in a meeting, they were appalled that I voted for Trump. That was a questioning that they put me under. So uh, we saw the writing on the wall, given what occurred in 2014, where Charlie Baker and the Mass GOP screwed over a guy called Mark Fisher. Here was an engineer who ran for governor against Baker. He went into the convention with 30% delegates pledged. Well, they were uh, literally, uh, you know, ripping up ballots of his, and he ends up getting 14.9%. And so he sues and he wins, but it was too late. So what we realized was the mass GOP is basically a racket. They do not want outsiders. And we had heard from the senior levels of the GOP, since you brought up this guy, who we call Dirty Deal, and you'll understand why, um, is that he had been allotted by Baker not to run against him and he would support him for U.S. Senate. And in return, he wouldn't run against the governor. So we saw the writing on the wall that these decisions are made in back room. They violate basic norms of democracy, which they appeal to. 
So that's why we dumped the Republican Party in November 2017. Mm -hmm. And no one thought we would get on the ballot because to get on the ballot, you have to, the, most, the parties either have their internal network, you have to pay for signatures, and most of them pay five to eight bucks, and no one thought we were gonna do it, they laughed at us. We, by that time, had around 3,000 volunteers who were moved by our message, and uh, we ended up getting not 10,000, but 20,000 signatures, and didn't pay for one of them, in the cold, the rain, etc. And then we became one of three people to get on the ballot, and the audacity of, the, of, of Warren and the mass GOP to collude against us to keep us off the debate stage is reprehensible. And every newspaper, including yours, I saw a letter that just came out at three in the morning, should be speaking out against this. Because what we're really saying is if we don't speak out against this, is that a, 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 a very well-qualified candidate like myself, who this public deserves, is not allowed on the debate stage. And what we get is we get low standards. By the way, Jeff Deal is not the Trump chairman. And you know, I, I know we had this interaction that you weren't referring to me as doctor, and you were bringing up the APA style guide, we're making pecuniary stuff about my title, which is an earned title, but we're very generous with Jeff Deal, who is not the Trump chairperson. That's a lie. And everyone listening should understand that. And all of the journalists, why do you keep promoting this guy, and including Elizabeth Warren, as a Trump co-chair or the Trump chair? When he's not, the evidence is there. There was one chairperson, Vincent DeVito. There's an official letter from Donald J. Trump, and this is to create a controlled opposition. That's what's going on. And a guy like me, who's coming from outside, who represents a 60%, it's absolutely disgusting that I'm not on the debate stage. So, um, and, and the standard they use were your rankings in the poll? No, no standards. Again, the press are lying about this. It's an absolute false, it, it, it just lies. Mass Live is lying, saying I didn't hit poll numbers. Not true. There were four debates, so let's get the facts. And by the way, I really would appreciate that we go back to basic essence of truth in journalism. Jeff Deal's not the co-chair. He's not the chairperson. I hope you guys correct that. Now let's talk about the debates. We weren't, there were, four, uh, in um, August, we got a letter saying that we would be invited to a debate. Um, and we would have to hit a 15% visibility. All right, so we agreed to go to that. Um, after that, after the primary, in the midnight of the primary, you can go look at this. Elizabeth Warren agrees to do three debates with Dirty Deal. Okay? I call him that because that's what he is. By the way, Jeff Deal was expelled out of high school for stealing from a woman. And you should go look at that. Stealing jewelry. None of this gets brought out. He's not a nice guy. So three debates are scheduled with Dirty Deal. We're not even invited. So the first debate that we were invited had a criteria of 15%. The other three had no criteria. So I found the best lawyer in the country, Jason Torchinsky, and we sued. Uh, and in the press, it was listed, University of Massachusetts was the sponsor. It's all over there. I'm sure you guys saw it. They do, three of them were consortium. So we sued the University of Massachusetts, a violation of viewpoint discrimination, which is uh, part of the uh, First Amendment. When we, and we asked for, not only did we do a lawsuit, on top of that we did a preliminary injunction, which means that we want the courts to move on it quickly. We go to the PI, so on those three debates, Tony, there were no criteria. After we filed a lawsuit, uh, a poll came out saying we were 35.5% visibility, you can look it up. They canceled the first debate. So let me repeat that, these are the facts. There is a visibility number set, we exceed it, we file a lawsuit, and in fact, when they canceled it, 
the audacity of UMass to say, oh, we decided to cancel this after, before you file the lawsuit and after the primary, the UMass counsel says that. We go to the lawsuit, UMass's counsel shows up, and she says, we have nothing to do with these debates. We're merely a uh, outsider. And so all over the press it's listed, they are the actual one of the co-sponsors. So they said, well, the first two debates, um, that's not true. You see, and they bring up a website where they literally scrubbed it, taken away their name. However, on the third debate, which is to be held on October 30th, on October 30th, um, they could not do that because there's a letter from Marty Meehan to Elizabeth Warren inviting her. And moreover, at 4.02 a.m. of the date of the hearing, 4.02 a.m., we get a letter from UMass, their representative, saying that you must hit four criteria. Uh, you know, you must be a bona fide campaign, you must have a campaign office, you must have raised 50K, and you have to hit 10% 10, 10 of favorability. All right? So the judge uh, rules in that hearing, uh, UMass was trying to wheedle out, we're not involved. Now, why is this important? Because UMass is a state institution. Mm -hmm. the, the, the state cannot be adjudicating free speech unless it's to their interest. It's somehow to their benefit or somehow um, the free speech event threatens the state. These, this is a Supreme Court ruling on, on a, such a situation. So the judge asked us to submit information that we in fact hit the criteria, which we did. Um, in fact, we got an MIT professor involved and we clearly showed that I was polling at 16% among likely voters, which are the people who are the party loyalists who vote. You see, they, they typically do all the polling on likely voters because they control who comes to vote. And then they say that's the basis of deciding if you're even allowed on the debate stage. Among somewhat likely voters were 41% to Warren's 30%. You can do the math on it. And then we're 20% among registered voters. We submit this. By the way, most judges now want to dismiss cases. The law clerks do it. They make a math error. Okay? They say the MIT professor got a math thing wrong, which we're going to be appealing. The second piece of it is the judge in a footnote never addresses the fact, why are we not on the ballot? Are we a threat to the state? That's the only reason. So implicitly, he has basically said that we are a threat to the state. That's the only reason. And so that's what comes out of this. So the bottom line is in Jim Campanini of the Lowell uh, Sun, uh, the editors at the Eagle Tribune have found it reprehensible that we're not on the debate. In 2014, five candidates were invited to the debate stage by who I call racist John Keller. That's what he is. He invited five people, Democrat, Republican, and three other candidates were independents. Evan Falchuk at most was polling at 1%. In the latest UMass polls, without the error we found, we're polling at 8 and 9% respectively among um, likely and registered voters. No one has ever polled at my level as an independent in the state. So the question is, why is Shiva Dre not allowed? Now, by the way, the judge who ruled this was, it's listed was a chum of Bill Clinton, went to Oxford with him, and as we know, Elizabeth Warren supported the Clinton. So in America, it's no different than what's occurred in third world countries where my parents left the corruption. We have become a very corrupt state. It is a two-party oligarchy. And the fact that a son of Massachusetts who's been here for 37 years longer than either of these candidates, who's contributed to this economy, probably paid millions in taxes, is not allowed on that debate stage, is disgusting. And we have, you know, you're, you're given a choice between a fake 
and a faker or dumb and dumber. That's what we give people. Elizabeth Warren, who lies to get into Harvard. Dirty Deal, who says he's a Trump chair, who photoshops a picture with the president. And we spent money exposing that. There's three hands in the picture. So why does the media not bring this about? Vincent DeVito, you know, in a text message, he said the media is in on it, quote, unquote. He said that too? Yep. The media is in on it. The media is in on it. And everyone should understand that. Because what we have is no different. I hate to say it, you know, in China, people say, oh, that's a one-party state. Just think about it. Every, we went to Franklin High School. We asked the students, 100 students. Everyone raised their hand. Should Shiva be allowed to debate? Have we become so corrupt in our thinking that we have to rationalize this behavior? I didn't, I didn't you know, you know uh, try to get into MIT. Try to get a PhD out of MIT. 50% of the people fail their PhD exams. Awesome people. The founders of this country were incredible people. We have a guy who's a failed sign salesman who gets expelled out of high school. That's the quality of people we need. And another woman who lies who's a lawyer lobbyist. And no one wants to discuss. And the Boston Globe leaves my picture out in October. Three white people and the dark-skinned Indian guy left out. I, I tweeted out, racist Boston Globe leaves out the darkie. The editor of the Globe calls me more concerned that I called him a racist. He's still not put my picture up. On their website? On their website. Mm -hmm. And we brought it up. Victoria McGrain did an article calling me bizarre. So a, a guy with four degrees at MIT who's contributed as a Fulbright, Fulbright scholar who got invited by the graduate students to deliver the presidential lecture at MIT is called bizarre. What do you guys think about that? I ask you as journalists, what do you think about that? It's wrong. It's totally wrong for the American, for the Massachusetts electorate. So, and, 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 you know, Lewis is here, who's one of our guys. We had to now go to civil disobedience. We have to go to 1960s style civil disobedience. This was at one of the debates. Where yeah, I had to, at, my dad, my dad went to Warren's uh, office and he was, you know, he's 85 years old. You know what he said? Three are on the ballot, two are on the stage. Let's have a debate. This is so simple. This is why Massachusetts, by the public integrity group, was rated as the worst in corruption, the lowest in public integrity. Which group was that? Uh, it's called the Public Integrity Organization. I'll send you the link to them. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We live in corruption, total corruption in this state. And it's a collusion of both parties. Thank you. Um, yeah, and can I ask a question? You referenced to our, our system as fascist, and I've seen this on your Twitter. You've called a number of people, including, I believe, Warren, fascist. Is that... Actually, I called her a racist. Racist. I've recently called her a fascist, but I call her a racist. And the second most important issue in the Gallup polls is racism in America. Okay, we can address that at a later point. But do you believe that um, ideologically our state is fascist or do you call it as uh, or do you use the term as uh, giving importance to the problems well let's define fascism every ism has a person you can track it to capitalism adam smith right okay communism karl marx where do you trace fascism to adolf hitler no oh it, fascism mussolini mussolini's advisor okay mm -hmm. so fascism was designed as a centralization of power the theory of fascism was 
In fact, I'm a biologist, as you were talking about, a biological engineer. The theory came from that there are millions of cells in the body and that the cells need to be command and controlled from top down. That's the theory of fascism, centralization of power. Well, biology actually shows, the new biology shows that it's actually bottoms up. Cells actually, uh, the the model of self-organizing system is it's an emergent property. You have decentralization and an emergence occurs. So when I talk about fascism, fascism is a centralization of authority. That's what fascism is. So when you have two parties, Massachusetts, how many people are independents here, unenrolled? How many? You said 60. Well, it's going to be 60%. It's Mm 57.8%. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then you have a a minority, Mm -hmm. which is less than 10% on a good day Democrats, and, uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, Republicans, and 30% Mm -hmm. some odd Democrats, thinking they own the entire electoral process. That's fascism. They're centralizing power. So, for example, case in point, I'm on the ballot. Three people are on the... Uh, on the ballot, right? Why am I not on the debate stage? And the level of collusion that takes place, and in American fascism is very sophisticated, by the way. You know, fascism in other countries is much more overt. So it's not as sophisticated. American fascism puts to shame other countries' fascism. And the way they do it, these guys, you can look at the debate as a case in point, is a bound democracy. So binding democracy is a very another tactic of this neo-fascism which is you only discuss a few issues. Are you for or against taxes? Are you for or against abortion? Are you for or against the bathroom bill? But what about transpartisanship issues? Like what about the violation of free speech, net neutrality that's taking place in this country, which I have a solution for, and we should talk about that. What about the fact that the food supply in this country is being single-handedly destroyed by a few agrobiotech companies, which affects all sorts of health problems? What about the fact that we have a $1.8 trillion student loan crisis about to take place, that students are essentially made indentured servants by a a, a loan process which does not allow them to go bankrupt? And we can go, so I want to talk about real solutions to real problems. This small group of people, the Democrats and Republicans, by the way, when Lewis was at that last debate, you literally saw... Warren's campaign manager, Deal's campaign manager, talking to the police to push us out of there when we had legitimate tickets. That's fascism. So this is not conspiracy. You're looking at someone who actually studied this deeply. And the unfortunate situation in America is that the reason you have these issues right now, the reason we have this divisiveness, it's not Democrat versus Republican. It's about people who are against the establishment, who are waking up, and those people are part of the establishment, Republican and Democrat. That's the divisiveness in America. And I think it's a, it's a very good divisiveness because it opens up the opportunity for us to have real change in this country. Um, speaking of which, uh, it goes to the heart of what we initially talked about, about the situation in the country. And, and that speaks to um, how, if you were to be elected in the Senate, how would you, um, how how can the Senate be able to be, to function in a more cooperative fashion? Because right now it's a great question. Yeah. and they it's it's like you can't step over the line to cooperate on much of anything. Um, so I think it's a great what, question, what, Tony. What, I, I think it's a great question as a transition to, to policy. Look, mm-hmm. uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, their goal is to retain power. It's Pepsi and Coke, and the entire model here is to is to create issues that do divide us. And we don't talk about issues that can bring this country together. That's, they, this is 
uh, architected. I'm not talking about some people in a back room, but this is an implicit orchestration. So for example, when it comes to healthcare, the, the, the issues, are you for single payer or non-single payer? Are you for Obamacare or not Obamacare? We don't discuss the transpartisan issues that can actually bring this country together because health is actually a transpartisan issue. It affects every one of us in this room. Well, I have a solution that can lower the healthcare costs from $10,000 per worker. Today, we're gonna to be spending about $3.7 trillion. And by 2020 or 2030, I have to look at the exact date, in that range, we're gonna be up to one to $3 of our money will be going to healthcare. So when you look at that enormous cost, you know, we have to address that solution. But we don't talk about lowering the cost. We talk about are you for or against Obamacare, for or against single payer. The fundamental issue that can bring us together is if we all realize that a 50 cents hamburger is selling for half a million dollars. What do I mean by that? That there's a collusion between the, the big pharma, big insurance, and big hospitals. And that collusion is owned and modulated by people called group purchasing organizations, GPOs. I don't know if you guys know what those are. Have you ever heard of them? Well, it's probably the, one of the biggest rackets that no one has addressed. They were given safe harbor in the late 80s and again in 2000 for the pharmacy equivalent of them, which controls the supply chain of everything that you see in a hospital and primarily everything you see in a pharmacy. So if you go to a hospital, God forbid, knock on wood, no one has to, and you walk in, the pillowcases, the bed sheets, the stapler on the nurse's desk, everything is owned and controlled by three GPOs, at least 80% of the supply. So in the 70s, they organized to really help um, hospitals get lower costs. But later on, they consolidated and they monopolized, they controlled the, 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 literally the supply chain. So what's happened is they literally are able to give kickbacks, corruption, that was allowed, and that entire process needs to be reversed. I think every American will be for lowering the cost of healthcare. As a part of that, if you look at the entire aspect of healthcare, this is again a transpartisanship issue, everyone will agree that we got our health care. Where do you get your health? Well, in my view, three things. You get your health care from actually having a primary care physician. My grandmother was a healer in a local village. In ancient times, traditional times, it was always there was a healer you had a relationship with. They looked at you, they saw you, they spoke to you. Well, a doctor can't even see a patient more than 15 minutes right now, right? So we gotta go back to supporting the patient-doctor relationship. That's called direct primary care, DPC, it's a movement. Venu and others have educated me on this. And that movement is where you pay 50 to $75 for your local physician, and he takes care of 80% of the issues. 80% of the issues can be handled by your primary care physician. We force people to go into big hospitals. Doctors are forced to go and join big hospitals because of the cost of medical education. We'll talk about that. So first thing, we bring down the basic, the basic cost of 50 to 75 bucks. The other 20%, catastrophe, et cetera, that can be solved with about 100, 150 bucks where you directly go to reinsurance for catastrophic insurance. So you put the catastrophic insurance plus your direct primary care, we have a great relationship, you add that's around 200 bucks. That's even before I've talked about you know, going after the GPOs. They add a quarter of a trillion to half a trillion dollars in excess to costs. Now no one discusses this because Elizabeth Warren supported GPO kickbacks. Um, it's a, have, uh, what, uh, yeah, because when Azar brought this up, you know, look, um, Elizabeth Warren and the Democrats are very clever, acting as though crocodile tears, and she said, oh, you need to show that to us. This is how they work. The GPO kickback system, one of the biggest frauds in America, 
It, uh, I would pass immediate legislation to eliminate the kickbacks and take away the Safe Harbor Act. This, the other part of my solution, which is also a transpartisanship issue, look, my sister went to medical school, a lot of doctors that I know, um, you have to go after high school to what, four years undergraduate, then four years medical school, and another four years, uh, you know, two to four years depending uh, on your specialization. We need to eliminate the need to go to four years undergraduate. Every other country does should be able to go to high school, right to medical school, and then specialization. Right away, you've removed the loan burden off that medical student by a couple hundred thousand dollars. People are joining big hospitals. Uh, over the last 20 years, we've lost nearly a quarter of a trillion, a quarter of a million, quarter of a million family, uh, 250,000 doctors have gone into big hospitals. Why? Because they have high burden, the regulation, et cetera. We need to go back to basic health, which comes from you and the patient having a relationship. The second piece of this is a low cost of medicine. Just as I described the GPOs, their equivalents called PBMs, who control the supply chain from the drug manufacturer to the CVSs of the world. And if you look at that cost, you know, a, a, uh, a, a $5 uh, aspirin bottle is selling for, you know, uh, 25 bucks. Um, generic drugs, even though generics are supposed to lower, these PBMs are controlling the supply chain. So even the notion of generic drugs, is uh, the costs are being cranked up. There are examples of a $2 generic being sold for 30 grand. Yeah, but that that's also coming directly from the pharmaceutical companies as well. No, it? no, no. I'm talking about generics here, Tony. So what happens is, let's say you're... Even generic insulin, e e for instance? Yeah. So, so do you know that one of the biggest problems that hospitals are experiencing right now is shortages of things like insulin, sodium bicarbonate, catheters? Mm -hmm. um, and the last piece of this is... There's a transpartisanship issue about we need to lower the cost of drug development. It takes 13 years to create a single synthetic drug. Most of them have a lot of side effects. We kill a lot of animals, which are more and more the FDA and the NIH is saying that's unnecessary. And so the entire drug development process is archaic. You know, I have a company called Cytosol. We discovered a drug for pancreatic cancer, a combination therapy in a record level 11 months and got it allowed. That came from advanced technology, the same approach we use to build airplanes. We don't go throwing test pilots and we don't throw monkeys in airplanes. We do it all on the computer. Now, that's the kind of solutions we need. So a lot of this comes from innovation. However, because of, again, I, I wanna use the word collusion. This is a real collusion we have between the NIH between peer-reviewed journals and between the 10 or, you know, 10 or uh, 20 of the major universities, innovation itself is constrained because the dollars essentially flow among the small set of uh, so-called university academics. And we need to bust that up. So, the, and the third piece of health is food, which is never talked about. Elizabeth Warren voted for the Monsanto Protection Act. As you've recently known, a groundskeeper got a $300 million uh, settlement. It was an appeal. They reduced it to 78 million. We're talking about a company. Over weed killer, right? The weed killer. Yeah. Monsanto, by no, the no. by the way, was a company that created with Dow in the 60s a, a chemical called Agent Orange. Agent Orange was an herbicide which was unleashed uh, to defoliate uh, the the plant so we could bomb the Vietnamese better. But it also harmed a lot of our soldiers who still don't get taken care of. Well, when the war ended, they repurposed that capability to drop. Glyphosate, also known as Roundup, on factory farms. And then Monsanto went on to uh, uh, 
also create genetically engineered foods, which were the same seeds which could withstand their own herbicides. So they own both. They own the seeds and they own the herbicides. Well, that company has caused so much harm because they essentially have devastated the topsoil of this country and Republicans and Democrats have both supported them. I just did a movie with Pierce Brosnan and his wife. I'm the uh, chief scientist in the movie. You can see it. It's called Poisoning Paradise. It's about what's occurred on the island of Hawaii. Um, it's won probably 14 film awards. So you're looking at someone who's actually fought Monsanto. I wrote five papers exposing them. I was up in Vermont with Neil Young when we you know, called for GMO labeling. Elizabeth Warren voted against uh, Bernie's GMO labeling bill. So that would make me a lefty right? In that model. But these are transpartisanship issues. Lowering the cost of health care. Cleaning up our food supply. But Congress, you know, so these are the kinds of legislation I would bring, Tony. And I would use the, that role as a senator to bring up issues that people I believe really care about. Massachusetts citizens, you know, we have a lot of organic farms here. By the way, 80% of working people in this country want organic food. It's not just a bougie thing anymore. It's, we want clean food. There's a direct correlation between food and all these diseases we get. But that's never talked about. So in, so in summary, when you want to talk about bringing people together, let's talk about the most important thing. We have this spaceship called the human body, and we're supposed to take care of it. And we have to take care of it. That means responsibility goes to us. You're talking about fascism? We've outsourced that to this big conglomerate called big insurance, big pharma, and big hospitals, as though they know how to take care of our health. We have to take care of our health. We have to, like we do with our car or our puppies, we go find the right vet. We should find the right doctors. We should find locally grown foods. Uh, one of the things that I've done is I created the International Standard for Clean Food through one of my research and education foundations. If you go to Whole Foods, it's beyond organic. It looks at the bioavailability of the food, whether the food is GMO, it's a, it's a label. We did it as a labor of love to help the industry. But that's something I've contributed to. We actually, I, I spearheaded the development of a new standard called clean food. It's a clean food label. Okay. I, 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 These I are transpartisanship wanna... issues, I'm saying. Who, what, what parent doesn't want their kid to eat good food? Who wants to poison their kids? Who does not want lower health care? Who doesn't want the best health care at the lower cost? And, and who wouldn't? So, right. so my Those question, are transit. My question yeah, is, transpartisanship um, issues. Because you're making um, some extraordinary claims here. And, and um, to go down a particular road, uh, you would assume that there would be uh, extraordinary or very clear evidence. Has anyone tried any of these particular, um, can you point to any countries, any, any areas or institutions that have tried some of these solutions? Sure. And, and how did they work out? They're very, so let's talk about medical education. Mm -hmm. Australia, London, India, and by the way, India produces some of the best doctors in the world. That's why people are going to India to get medical and, and Indian doctors lead here. Those people are in that model. You go to high school, mm -hmm. you do what's called the 13th year, then you go to medical school. It's done in every place. Let's talk about um, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, the the the, um, uh, the medical school. The uh, what I call direct physician care. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a growing movement now in this country. You can talk to Jeff Gold right up in Marblehead. We did a town hall with him. We invited Warren. We invited Markey. They didn't even want to show up. Jeff Gold runs a practice, and there's about two thousand DPC doctors. Doctor Vainu is one of them. He doesn't take insurance. And it's the concept of you, you, you find the best doctor, like you find the best vet, like you find the best mechanic, you take control and you pay your doctor. Uh, uh, Dr. Gold gave an example where he has a patient, a young kid, who gets 
who gets a big gash on his head. The mother calls him up saying, should I go to the emergency room or should I come to you? Dr. Gold was on vacation. Now his model is 50 to 75 bucks. You can call him on email, you can Skype, you can come to his office, he's always there, 24 by seven. That's back to the village model of a true doctor. Well, he tells, uh, I forget the kid's name, is call him Johnny to come in. And he says, let's ask Johnny what he wants to do. And Johnny said, well, I want Dr. Gold to take care of me. So local anesthesia, stitches done. Guess how much that cost, Tony? 250 bucks. You know how much that would have cost in an emergency room? 10 times that. So, so what I'm talking about is people are doing this, but the healthcare um, conglomerates, you know, we live in the mecca of medicine in Boston. Elizabeth Warren is part of the big insurance, big hospital, big, um, you know, uh, pharma model. That's where she, that's what they want to drive. And this is why a guy like me should be on the debate stage because I will bring these up. Let's talk about lowering the cost of, you know, GPOs, the notion of going direct, that's done in many countries. You know, in other countries, in quote unquote third world countries, you buy your medicines directly if you want from the manufacturer. They, ha they don't have GPOs who control the supply chain. What they've done is, let's say everyone in this room is a generic manufacturer of insulin. The GPOs and the PBMs have done it. They'll, they'll strike a deal with Retoc, right? Radic. Radic. So he owns, he, so even though there's every one of us making insulin, but he owns the, the GPOs control the way that his insulin goes into, or the PBMs into the pharmacy or into the hospital. So, so they basically subverted the concept of generics. Let's talk about cannabis. You know, cannabis is a medicine, it's a food, and I, I don't just mean the actual flower, I'm talking about the whole plant. You know, it was used in, in America for centuries, for, sorry, not many, many years, decades, for many uses. Well, what's happening is now there's a movement to legalize cannabis, and even there, you can see the fundamental difference I have. You know, Western Massachusetts can benefit a lot, the local farmers, from growing cannabis, and cannabis was really intended to be a local, locally grown thing, but you have conglomerates moving in. Monsanto wants to essentially monopolize the entire cannabis arena, and what we're seeing is the same old model. Big liquor companies and big agrobiotech are gonna to try to monopolize cannabis. And not only that, they're gonna to try to create genetically engineered strains so they actually will own the licensing of them and so we'll actually destroy the original plant. Well, I, I, in terms of what's going on in Massachusetts with the legalization, I, I haven't heard of any um, major conglomerates coming in. And, oh yeah, well find, go look at which are the VCs who are funding the owning mm -hmm. of the big farms. It should be small farms. My legislation would say that it should support small farms. We shouldn't support big farms because someone could actually grow cannabis and make a good income, you know? And we need to, we need to ensure that the small farmers are supported. What's gonna happen to cannabis is what occurred to every other large agrobiotech. And that's what Elizabeth Warren supports. Well, the large one that I can think of in this area that's been proposed is, is uh, being set up as a nonprofit. Uh, well, go look at who is funding these, okay? Go look at the venture money coming in and the private equity money. Uh, I have a very good friend of mine, you know, who's about to finish a large private equity deal, and they're gonna go get about a couple hundred acres. And it's not Massachusetts money, it's outside money, they're gonna displace a lot of local farmers. So, same old, same old, centralization. And um, part of the, I, I think the other transpartisan issue here, Tony, is I think, when we look back at great statesmen like President Eisenhower as a Republican or people like Fulbright, 
uh, Senator Fulbright, who was a Democrat, both of these great people acknowledged that the centralization of power, uh, uh, Eisenhower called it the military-industrial complex, I'm sure you're aware, in 1961 when he gave his famous Mm -hmm. speech, he warned Americans that the, the collusion between big military and big corporations would destroy this country and people should be concerned. And then in, in 1972 or 71, Fulbright used the word military industrial academic complex. And both of them warned Americans of this deep collusion. Um, David Noble, who was a professor at MIT, uh, talked about in the 1940s when Raytheon spun out of MIT. You may remember this. It, uh, that's when the notion of the true public or the the, pri- the university as a haven for really doing unadulterated research ended because public funds were used to support the military. What we've done is uh, we have uh, forced Massachusetts citizens to choose between innovation or jobs and defense. Right. So when the Saudi Arabia question comes, we uh, you know both the Republican and the Democrat, both both of these two fake people um, start talking about how much money we're going to lose from Saudi Arabia. Well, it's about 32 billion, okay? Well, now actually look at where the jobs have come from in Massachusetts, where really the wealth has come from. It's come from the 33,000 businesses that came out of MIT alumni. 33,000 businesses, which still to this day generate two trillion to the GDP. That's about 10% of the GDP came out of MIT. So I look at Worcester, I used to hire a number of people, Worcester Polytech, Northeastern. There are a lot of smart people beyond that one mile radius around MIT. And we don't acknowledge them. So we have farmed, like we farm genetically engineered foods, we farm innovation and we keep it restricted to a certain area. I'm not saying great innovation doesn't come out of MIT or out of Silicon Valley, but there's a lot of smart people in this state beyond 495. And I know this personally because long before I came to MIT, when I invented the first email system, it wasn't done at MIT, it wasn't done by the military, it was done by a 14-year-old American kid who mowed lawns, played baseball in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, I was solving a civilian problem. To be fair, there is some... Um, there is no controversy on that. It was created. Time magazine said the man who invented email, the press, mm-hmm. needs to stop referring to, you need to go do the research on the people who are saying that. CBS Innovation Nation, when you do your links, point to that. Because parenthetically, you always say there's controversy. No, the controversy was created. I created the first email system, inbox, outbox folders, called it email, a term never used, and got the first US copyright. Period. Now, do I have to be called Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and then I get credit for it? I called it email, have the first copyright, and copyright was the only way to protect software inventions. We're not talking about electronic messaging, Tony. The military did not invent email. So the big myth, getting back to innovation, is that we have been bamboozled, that we have to go kill people, and then we get innovation. This is the brainwashing that's been done to Americans, that the fact of solving a civilian problem, that's where innovation comes from. I was helping secretaries move from the typewriter to the keyboard, who were using the old inter-office mail system, which I remember you know, inbox, outbox, folders, all those things, carbon copy, you may not know it, but that was the inner office mail system in electronic form. So I was solving a civilian problem, not trying to simply send messages. And that was called email. And that is email. And not the controversy was caused by a few historians who were so upset that a new skull was found in Africa when it went into the Smithsonian. So you guys need to get your record straight. Okay. 
pulling pulling uh, some of this information where you brought in uh, what's going on with Saudi Arabia, uh, what would you do and what would you recommend in terms of the conflict the way it's shaping up right now uh, between uh, the murder of a uh, journalist uh, in Turkey in the uh, Saudi uh, consulate? Well, look, once again, you see the hypocrisy of the Republicans and Democrats on this. We have been supporting a regime which lives in the you know fifth century, uh, beheads people, treats people horribly, and when when a reporter um, who you know who disappears, then the so-called left now makes an issue out of it, right? Uh, but they didn't make an issue out of this when all sorts of horrors take place in Saudi Arabia long before that. Um, they haven't made an issue of the fact that Saudi Arabia is supporting the most atrocious war in, in Yemen. Uh, I mean, go look at how many of these young kids are dying every day in Yemen. It's, it's there, there insane. Is, I, I think the left is making an issue. Well, well saying that yeah, we yeah, but what I'm, saying, what I'm saying is, again, getting back to this notion of neo-fascism, they bound the discussion. When they want to use an issue, then it's brought up. So it's a very controlled type. Of, so they don't really care about... Uh, people in Saudi Arabia. Let's be honest. They use them as they need. Now, the policy with Saudi Arabia, we've created that policy because I uh, go back to when the petrodollar was created, right? So when in, in 1970s, when the petrodollar was created, we connected at the hip our economy to the Mideast oil economy. And that's where that got created because we wanted to uh, destroy essentially the economy from an imperialist uh, globalist model, the economy of every other country. So that's where all of this comes from. And that's never discussed in this discussion. We focus it on, okay, this journalist has disappeared. But we don't get down and discuss the real deeper issues that Saudi Arabia is a client state of the United States. That's what it really is. And we use them as we need, and we arm them as we need, because what the United States, or the, I don't want to say the United States people, but the policy uh, is essentially to uh, support and drive illegal wars, which help defense contractors. Uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't get along with Syria. Elizabeth Warren wanted to bomb Syria. Go read on her Twitter feed. Let's go bomb Syria. You're looking at someone on my PhD graduation. I was a guy who held up a huge banner as I was getting off stage, which said US out of Iraq, when it was unpopular to do so. So Elizabeth Warren is pro-war. She's pro-military industrial complex. She's a darling of Raytheon and general dynamics. Because these people are lawyer lobbyists, they don't know how to create jobs, they think we have to suckle onto Saudi Arabia and defense contractors. That's who they, that's what this is about. It's it, not about a journalist. Wasn't it Trump himself, though, who uh, has tread very carefully uh, in this, like when the word first came out, that brought up the fact that um, about the defense purchases that Saudi Arabia is making, and we've got to be. We, we've got to get this sure. right sort of thing. Yeah, yeah so. Trump did that, but I, I, I'm more on this issue in alignment with Rand Paul. Uh, Rand Paul's been very thoughtful on this, um, that we don't need Saudi Arabia. You know, it's one of the most, um, I had an uncle who lived in Saudi Arabia. It's one of the most restrictive, I, it's beyond fascism, that regime. You know, what are the American values? Do we need their money that we're not willing to make sure kids in Worcester get Votex school education? We help them do innovation so we could make up for that. What is really going on? And I, I would argue it has nothing to do, in fact, with Saudi Arabia. It has to do with the fact that military defense contractors influence elections. That's what this really has to do with. Saudi Arabia, you've got to peel away the layers. we got to, you know, the American people are listening and the Massachusetts people here on Twitter, they deserve a far better, and they're getting smarter. So I think it's time that journalists really go deeper into these issues.
Massachusetts um, has been forced by its politicians to cater to defense contractors, and we don't need to do that. How can you talk about that when we, when we arm these people who go bomb people for no reason to profit defense contractors and then be talking about how much you like organic food? Elizabeth Warren supported the Monsanto Protection Act and she is in bed with every major defense contractor. That's Elizabeth Warren. She's not anti-imperialist, she's pro-imperialist, she's pro-war. Uh, you know, pro-Monsanto, against Bernie's GMO labeling bill. their campaign contributions to see what percentage of them and the size well, of them that, that well, come from defense well, contractors? Well, you, you, know, you know, Tony, these people work in much more illicit ways. They're a lot smarter than you or I, and they're a lot more insidious. Um, you just need to look at um, the fact how Raytheon, go read, the, the, you know, uh, how they, they like her. You know, Raytheon's down, right down the street from where I am. They're not enemies to her. They are in a complicit relationship with her. She's on the Senate Armed Services Committee, right? With John McCain, who's known uh, as someone who's never taken a position against Saudi Arabia. Her and John McCain were like this. Now, the, the bottom line is, you know, when you look at, it's really, I think this is a transpartisanship issue. Where does innovation come from? Innovation has always been what made this country great. The founders of this country built an amazing patent system. You know, they recognize that the patent system to protect small innovators would really support this economy. That's where America's growth came from. Broad innovation, not in MIT or Silicon Valley, broadly across this country. There was a time when the government would say, whoever builds a airplane or travels from here to here will give you money. It was not centralizing innovation. And when I talk about my experience with the invention of email, it's, it's not about me, it's about the fact that we've been bamboozled to think all great innovations come from big institutions. By the way, a 14-year-old boy invented TV, follow Farnsworth. And when we look at what's going on, and we look at the fact that there's some amazing institutions that we should resurrect, which were based on innovation, one of them was the United States Postal Service. Now this is gonna sound initially medieval and archaic, but when Franklin was an amazing innovator, when he created the Postal Service, initially, you may remember, it was done so you and I, Tony, or you and I, uh, Lewis, could trade a message, right? For the lowest cost possible. It's a pretty amazing institution. And they also set up a police force, which if anyone intervened with that, it was a 20-year sentence in prison. So the Postal Service was an amazing innovation that was created to ensure that all of us could communicate freely up until 1960, 70, uh, Seventy percent of the communication, sixty-five percent of the communication, was political content, right wing, left wing, etc. Well, in 1997, I was running a different email company. Remember, email was initially used in the office environment. When email took off, email volume overtook postal mail volume in 1997, and we all started getting on free email. Well, that was the the year that I met with the postal service uh, executives, and I said, "You guys need to offer a public email service." because what's happened is we've traded away our freedom. Uh, Google and Facebook and Hotmail, et cetera, essentially own all of our messages if you read the privacy statements. They own those messages. And I argued that the Postal Service was not in the postal mail business, they were actually in the communications business and they should offer for 50 bucks a service to all of us that we could get a federal digital mail service because the body, because it's protected by the Constitution. They thought it was a crazy idea. They said, you know, we're in the, uh, postal mail business, what do we want to do with this email? Fast forward to 2011, if you remember front page, Boston Globe, the Postal Service is going out of business. I wrote a scathing article in Fast Company 
um, saying, look, you guys could be making billions of dollars, and I have a solution. The head of the Postal Service contacted me, the Inspector General, not the Postmaster General, and they said, Shiva, what's your solution? They, in fact, funded me uh, six figures to write two major business plans and analysis how the Postal Service could make billions of dollars just on the digital service and a $270 billion opportunity, not small, in the social media service. We submitted those papers, they've done nothing. Here's my view, the Postal Service, the only way to resolve the net neutrality issue that Facebook and Google essentially monopolize and the big telcos is we need to resurrect the Postal Service as a 21st, re-engineer it as a 21st century engine for digital communication. That's the only way to preserve American communication. So for example, the Postal Service should offer an email, a YouTube, a social media service. By the way, the software is pretty easy. There's really no rocket science there anymore. And you or I for $50 a year would get, no one could interfere with us. That's how you resolve. You don't regulate Facebook or Google. That's never gonna happen. The other thing is all the Postal Service locations could be used for what's called mesh networks. For 20 bucks nowadays, Tony, you could put literally a beacon on top of this building and you could create a people's network. Mm -hmm. Right now, you know, freedom is literally can be, if you look at what happened in the Egypt uh, uh, riots, you know, the protests, mm -hmm. Mubarak made one phone call when, when they were growing and Vodafone shut everything down. So I, I want to argue that the, the, given the First Amendment is the core to the Constitution, the First Amendment essentially has lost all of its teeth by the growth of big telcos and by the growth of Facebook and Googles. And I have a solution for that. But there, there, on the other side of that, there are some people saying, we, we're really going to turn this over to the federal government? And, it's not the federal government, it's and, the Postal Service. Well, the Postal Service is a, an agency that is... No, it's very different. The Postal Service, you need to rethink this and really think about it. The Postal Service was designed to give teeth to the First Amendment. It's one of the most amazing institutions. You send a letter for 50 cents and it gets somewhere. It's one, and in the 80s, Reagan gutted it, and, he, and they took the best port. They, basically, what's happened over the years, we've been gutting the Postal Service. And we took, you know, DHL um, and FedEx took the, took the spoils of it. I mean, Postal Service workers are pretty amazing people. You get a mail delivered, it's one of the most trusted brands. And we say, oh, it's a government. No, it's not a government institution. It's embedded into the Constitution. It was designed to protect the First Amendment. And we've forgotten, so when I initially say this kind of solution, people say, what are you talking about? And when you really think about it, it is the only way out of it. And the mm -hmm. reason I know this is because I know what email is, I know what communication is, and I have a really good sense of uh, how to get out of this. It's not gonna come from regulating Facebook or Google. We have to make, re-engineer the Postal Service for the 21st century. So, if you were elected to the Senate, um, how would you put some of these ideas that you're talking about because uh, the Senate is filled with um, Republicans and Democrats. Yep. So how, did you, how do you arrange something like this so that you, you can accomplish anything? Great question. Look, um, when you, I believe there's a lot of good people in the Senate and, um, um, one second, I'm just going to, sure. Uh, yeah, there's a lot, I believe there's a lot of good people in the Senate. And what's happened is that we've had a fossilization uh, of this two-party model. And my run offers people a unique opportunity, A, to get inspired that an independent can win and must win and we need fresh ideas. So I would argue that a guy like me running is probably a rare moment in history. It may not occur for another 20 years. And again, I say that with I mean, all humility. Independents would run for president. Yeah, but not a guy like me. Not a guy who 
actually Ross came might might well take exception it, but yeah but I think I've you know I came here as, I've gone through the entire American journey mm -hmm. immigrant a person of color an educator an inventor a scientist a worker producing jobs you haven't had that until the founders of this country for a long time tell me what that you know it doesn't take that much brains to be a lawyer it doesn't. It's a very, most of these people, a, science, a failed sign salesman. Look at the choice people in Massachusetts print. A lawyer lobbyist who lies that she went into Harvard and a failed sign salesman who has to Photoshop pictures with the president and, so, and all the media. The only reason, the only reason that they even have a shot is because the Democrats and Republicans in collusion with the media have to curtail me well, you're off the debate you're stage. Talking, you're talking about Massachusetts. Um, Tony, do you think if I got on the debate stage, any of them would have a chance? I don't think so. Well, I don't think so. And that's the issue at hand. Why isn't a, it's, it's okay, it's not connected. Why isn't a legitimate candidate who's mm -hmm. on the ballot on the debate stage, Jim Campanini in the, in the sixth congressional district, 10 candidates were on the debate stage. Mm-hmm. Tell me, talk but, to me about okay. that. Tell me why I, the only dark-skinned Indian I guy. Answer, well, I, no, I, I think you should. You've been in politics for a while, know. Tony. I, I don't think know. you can. Um, I think you got. I think your newspaper should I take have, a position. The question on it. that I have for you is: is that is that how would you take this approach? Because sometimes you can be rather direct, sort of like Trump. Um, and everyday uh, working people are direct. Your, in terms you know who's of your not messaging. Yeah. How do you get people in these two parties, which you say are colluding in a in a fascist sort of way? To cooperate with some of these ideas. So let me tell you, let's look at how all change has ever taken place. Let's go back to fundamentals of, of social change. It's never occurred from politicians, has it? It's occurred from people's movements. It's movements that have changed things. When, it, when uh, Susan B. Anthony went to the Democrats, what did they do? The House. They laughed at her. So what did she do? She took her movement to the streets. You know, Lyndon B. Johnson didn't give black people or protect them, okay? It was movements. My winning is a movement. It's a shockwave that lets people know that the people of this country are tired of the two-party system. And that in and of itself is a historic value. Trump winning, forget him even passing any bills, let's just take that away. Him winning when all the media and everyone was colluding against him, both parties, itself was a historic moment. Do, I would, you, well, let me just finish. Do you I would, see that as collusion? Definitely. I mean, it's total collusion. And the word we should use I, is collusion. In fact, I think we should change the dictionary definition. Collusion, Democrat and Republican, e.g., example. We well, should do that. Didn't the media, didn't the media kind of, wasn't he sort of, as a candidate, kind of a creation of the media? Because there was this whole, isn't this terrific? And they were broadcasting his entire well, rallies uh, it, through the course of the I, I, I agree. You know why, though, Tony? Because the media, uh, Trump played the media very well. Look. I used to be married to a woman called Fran Drescher, okay? Yes. I was having dinner with Mark Burnett. Mark Burnett used to run mm -hmm. The Apprentice, yeah. okay? And I asked Mark, do you think he's gonna win? He goes, he's never gonna win, okay? This is Mark Burnett, who runs The Apprentice, okay? No one thought he was gonna win, why? Because they underestimated their own insidiousness. The media wants advertising revenue. So Trump led them like a carrot. Every two weeks, he would drop a bomb. And all of you guys in the media, because it's all about advertising followed him. And he was five steps ahead of the media. So the reason people are upset with Trump is not because he won, they're more upset that he played them and he got away with it. That's what they're really upset at. And he overcame their control. 
I hate to say this, that's what, that all the crying that you saw of the Google employees in that video was not against Trump. It was like, oh my God, we lost our liberal control or we lost our left and right control of him, Republican and Democrat. That's what this was about. And the reason in Massachusetts, we were the ones who sent Elizabeth Warren a DNA test. We were the ones who forced her to do all this. The Boston Globe doesn't mention my name. Fox News doesn't mention my name because they don't want to give any attention to Shiva. Because if they do, they've learned from Trump, oh my God, this guy may actually have a landslide victory against both of these parties. So there's an actual active thing because as we say, the swamp also learns. So they learn, shoot, this guy, you know, has the same attributes, but he's, he may be even on a different order of magnitude. So let's leave him out of anything. It's not even fake news, it's invisible news. So um, it's okay. beyond fake news. I All call right. it invisible so news. You know, you, there's a, there's a you, great book got, written, right? The Invisible you've got, Man. You've got a you've got a forum here. Um, that By the way, I appreciate you guys doing this. I think you're the first guys uh, to do this. So I think there's maybe some hope for journalism. So so maybe we can ask uh, some specific policy things. I'd love uh, to. Because uh, for instance, one of the things that's let's going talk on about education, taxes, the, yeah. The, well, immigration. Yeah, let's uh, talk about immigration, is, which is a, a very big issue. And especially what's going on, what's approaching our southern border, and how to deal with that. Uh, now, your your position, so that you've seen it from a couple of different sides. You're talking. To, you're talking to a person who's who is an immigrant, a person of color who went through the immigration process. Mm -hmm. So, in, at a deep, deep level, look, my great grandfather, who I remember well, was an indentured servant who went on a ship, by the way, it's worse than being a slave because you have a debt on you all the time, to Burma, immigrated there, and then walked back after World War II. Went, made a lot of money and then came back with nothing. My parents came here who were low caste Indians. You, wouldn't have, you won't find a lot of Indians like me. We're not talking about your Brahmin upper caste Indians, who by the way, most of them never even signed our signature ballots because they themselves are racist and discriminatory. It's a whole nother topic we could talk about. But the immigrant, like me coming here is one in a trillion. My dad somehow became an engineer, my mom became a mathematician. So we went through the immigrant journey. My dad came here first, we had to wait, we were quote unquote separated from my father for about a year. Then my sister and I came here, we came to Patterson, then to Clifton, then Persimony. We, we've gone through that immigration so you, cycle. Gone through that. And it was a merit-based process. That's, that's a given. So, but it was a merit-based process. You yeah. had to submit your resumes, you had to submit reference letters, and there was a ethos and an understanding it was an honor to come to this country. So when we were separated from my dad, it wasn't like, oh my God, we're separated from my father. Well, that's just the rules. So now let's talk about immigration. The, let's go to Civics 101. Mm -hmm. The judicial branch interprets the laws, the executive branch enforces the laws, and the legislative branch creates the laws. What Trump is doing is purely enforcing the laws. So all the media is attacking him. But the real issue here is the legislative branch. Neither party ever wants to solve immigration because both have profited from it. Since the 1800s, if you look at when we took over the land of the Mexican people, we never really gave them citizenship. It was always left in this nebulous mode, and there's been a lot of stuff written about this by famous historians, and we did that to create a pool of low-cost migrant workers. That's, and this was created, and both parties do not want to solve immigration because if they did, they would lock the doors on the Capitol, not leave, like all of us have deadlines, and say, let's get on the whiteboard and we're gonna solve this. They don't wanna solve this because one party profits from it, from illegal votes, and the other party profits from it from the PNL lines of Wall Street where they have immigrant low-cost labor. So what's the solution to it? Well, first of all, there has to be a commitment 
just saying we're not leaving the next you know session until this is solved and that solution taking into account fairness meritocracy and compassion would go like this in my view first of all you say okay it should be merit-based immigration is that nationalist yeah whatever you want to call it it should be based on merit-based immigration because from a country we want to bring in the best now you look at all the fact that there are a set of illegal immigrants and the fact is big corporations have profited from it you know farmers uh, you know big agrobiotech in California have profited from it well if those people have been here in my view some period of time let's say 10 years they haven't committed crime they've been good citizens you put them on the path to legal immigration that's being compassionate then you take the people who are hardened criminals etc and you ship them out now that is not a left or right issue that's saying let's deal with this as a fundamental issue because we as a nation should take responsibility of this we created illegal immigration and Democrats and Republicans profited and created this. Now that's a very rational view. So that's how I would approach immigration, uh, recognizing it's Congress's issue. The enforcement division has to do enforcement, period. You can't blame Trump for this. It's not Trump, it's the Democrats and Republicans, both parties. Well, there are different approaches that can be taken in terms of enforcing the law. And, and there was the whole issue about separating families, which I understand a judicial uh, decision had something to do with that. But, yeah. um, but there, there, there are ways to try to approach it. Uh, there was almost a compromise that a number of years ago, it was the Gang of Eight it was referred to, uh, both uh, bipartisan, yeah. and, um, and the rug got pulled out from under that. So, I, I, But I'm saying, Tony, the fundamental issue is people are profiting from illegal immigration. We profit from exploited labor. And it relates to the fact that, um, I mean, this is an interesting thing. Why did my parents have to come here? Think about this. Because... At that period, we did not have enough engineers and mathematicians in this country. It started around that period. We didn't put enough infrastructure. When civil rights took place, the Republicans and Democrats, by the way, I support affirmative action as a gain of the civil rights movement, but it was not the solution, okay? They threw a bone to poor Hispanics, blacks, and, uh, you know, as a bone, but it was not the solution. We never built infrastructure. Look, my great-grandfather said the only way out of oppression and suffering is education. We never built core infrastructure, skills-based training. We never built enough Votech schools. We never gave people core infrastructure in this country. Instead, we said, okay, we're going to throw you affirmative action. And what it actually did was never address the fundamental issues, which was that you weren't giving people... So, in 1968, by way of example at MIT, I think there were two students, uh, black students at MIT. One of them was Shirley Jackson. She was delivering her PhD dissertation. She threw it down and she lectured all these old white men how horrible it was that there's only two black students. Well, the next year they let in, I think, 10 or 15 black students. And those students took over the MIT faculty club and they said, you know what, we're never going to succeed here because our high school systems never taught us calculus or trig, so they forced MIT to set up tutoring sessions there. And I used to teach in one of them. But the bottom line is, affirmative action was like, you know, in India we say you can touch your nose like this or touch it like that, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we did. We never addressed the fundamental issues. So that's what politicians do. It's Votech schools, it's skills-based training. As a 14-year-old kid, I learned software engineering. I learned programming from a mentor. That led to the invention of email. How many more other people that we could be afforded basic skills education. We need to unleash Votech schools. But what we have done is that 
we have suppressed the natural education climate of this country, so we have to import labor from other countries. You know, one could argue, had very smart people like my parents not had to uproot and leave and come here, maybe they would have stayed in India. Maybe the smartest people in India would have addressed corruption in their own countries. You follow what I'm saying? It's a, it's a, it may seem as a new argument, but I've thought about this. The best people in India, two million people left India and came here. These were the smartest minds because America wasn't producing enough skilled labor. So we imported people because we have a dearth of skilled labor in this country. And we do that because both parties want to create a class of people who are on welfare, who are not skilled, and the same type of system that they do among people who move money around. So the working class in this country is the one that suffers out of that. And this is a systems problem, and no one has that perspective, I think I've probably articulated, as I have, because I have that immigrant experience. I almost think, wow, why do my parents have to leave their country? We didn't bring my grandparents. We all just had to leave one day. Think about that. We had to uproot ourselves, go in this little spaceship and come here. Why did we have to do that? Because America didn't have enough skilled labor. So all these illegal immigrants coming here, you know, all the so-called left in California accept them because they need them to farm their almonds and their GMO organics, you know, inorganic products. That's why they bring them in for low cost labor. And we need to, we need to acknowledge that, that there's an economic issue here at hand. So if we're going to bring them in and exploit them, well then, Jesus, you know, let's acknowledge that, that you're exploiters, but we don't do that. So instead we, we create something called, in a nice term, sanctuary cities, as though we're helping these people, when we're actually cities for exploiting them. That's what they are. So, um, I, want to, I want to talk about education and taxes, by well, the way. Well, okay, we can, we can get to that, but we're, we're running out of time, yeah. so um, we're going to have to move. But, but to get back to... Um, we have, a, we have a crisis that's been generated um, based on what's going on with a, a large group of people coming here uh, and who will be at our border at some point soon. So how do you deal with something like that? Well, you have to go back to first principles. First of all, does a country have the two reasons that people immigrate here? I'll tell you why from personal experience was two reasons my parents came here. One was rule of law and meritocracy. In many of these, at that time, third world countries, you know, there is no rule of law. You pay people enough and you get away with murder. You know, be it Russia, be it India, be it China, right? Radek is shaking his hand up and down, right? We, we immigrated here because there was rule of law. You had some level of guarantee that people would observe the laws. And the other guarantee was that if you worked hard enough, you would get the fruits of your labor. Well, do we have rule of law or not? So if you have, you know, immigration law set forth and people can cross your borders at will, forget the issue of the immigration itself, but where does where do you stop that? Where does the rule of law now begin and end? You basically said that everything becomes malleable. You can do things as you want. So I would say you have to deal with the fact these people are not, they're illegal immigrants, they should not be allowed in, just from the standpoint of the enforcement division of this of, of, of the United States. Now if Congress, you know, people who are protesting this so much, what were they doing? I think they get six months vacation, don't they? Something ridiculous. The vacation they get was designed when we had horse and buggy. What are they doing? I, if I have to deliver something to a customer, you have a deadline, Tony, we have to get off our butt and we have to work day and night and we have to deliver. These guys have no motivation to do anything except fundraise to get into the next election. So I would argue this is Congress's issue. You can't point at Trump, you can't point at these people, oh my okay. God. You would be part of one of the houses of Congress. So I, I, I would say, I would tell Congress, we need to have, you know, where, uh, 
Congress needs to not leave until we pass some emergency legislation. Okay. Uh, I, I heard I heard rule of law. I heard meritocracy. What about that third element that you mentioned? By the way, we don't have that. And we don't have that anymore. And you can look at the debate as an example. Rule of law doesn't go in. I'm not allowed on the debate stage. And you have two people, both who lie to get into their careers. That, wow. And you can see it right now in the debates. Uh, and again, it's like can, a, you know, it's like a, it's into, like a little border. We can the, go into, the darkies left off of it, but we, two illegals are allowed okay, on it. Okay, but we can go into. Yeah. Um, no, no, I'm being serious. It's I an amazing symbolism. What's going on? I. I I think I need to mention that <laughs> yeah. um, the whole thing about what Elizabeth Warren checked off uh, in terms of her status happened in each case after she got to the That's not true. In 86 and 87, Tony, that's not true. In 86 and 87, she listed herself in a law directory as a Native American. You should go look at it. And that was a LinkedIn of those days. Look, I'm a professional. I have directories that I list myself in. If I were to say I'm an Indian black American, why do, why do I do that? Because when employers look at it, they can do a search. Tony, no but she, organization. When she got to the organization, she initially, the issue is, is that she initially listed herself as white or Caucasian and then changed it later. Tony, so, let me tell you, I hire a lot of people. Have you run a business? Uh, well, yeah, in a way. Okay, yeah. I hire a lot of people. I've been on MIT admissions committees, okay? No organization worth this salt, this is how moronic the Boston Globe thinks you and I are, says, oh, we hired Tony because he's a black guy, or we hired Michelle because she's a lesbian uh, transgenderite, or we hired Lewis because he's, no, they don't do that. No. So the Boston Globe writing this inane article saying, Harvard acknowledges they didn't hire Elizabeth Warren because she's Native American. Do they think we're stupid? No organization, oh yeah, we hired Elizabeth Warren because she's Native American and we said that. It's absolutely insane. Well, um, but you're making a supposition about something that is right now in your situation is unknowable because you're well, talking no, it about is what, was in, what was in the minds. You're assuming what was in no, the no, minds. No, 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 no. I'm saying no. The, the, the Boston Globe, because of our relentless putting up all these amazing signs which says only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian, had to write this article because there's a growing wave of people saying this woman's a hypocrite. And because of that growing wave, they had to write a 20-page treatise, release so-called documentation to make her appear transparent, saying, oh, she didn't get into Harvard because she was Native American. Come on. How stupid do you think we are? This shows, again, this collusion, because all these people party together. All these people are quite incestuous. They all hang out together. Come on. That's, that's what's going on. I'm sure Linda Bizzuti, or whatever her name is, and John Henry, they're pretty close friends with the Warrens. And they're not going to go write an article against it. This is truly what we're really seeing play out. So, to get so they call to, me bizarre, so, but they call Elizabeth Warren that it's so okay to lie and cheat. To, to get back to to get back. But I'd like to really talk to about policy back, questions. Okay, yeah. but to get back to the third element in terms of that group coming up, you mentioned compassion. So you yeah. would just you would um, not well, accept any refugees. Well, from well, that look, group? well, look. Um, we have to have compassion, right? Um, and there has to be provisions for that, always. And, but when you have 10,000 people coming up on your border, right, you have now created an engineering systems problem of how you even, how you even uh, execute on compassion, right? Because this is not just a set of people coming in to Ellis Island, right, where you have an opportunity to go through some process. That's not what we've created. And we need to, and so we've created a situation now that we can't even execute on that. Now, had Congress done its job, which it doesn't want to do, because they're out there fundraising for six months out of the year, we wouldn't have this. So I think the real issue is, what is Congress going to do about this? And why don't they use this occasion to lock themselves in, and we should probably chain them in there, 
until you come up with laws that are fair and equitable and compassionate for all people. That's what people should be, the, the focus of the media should be, what have you been doing, Congress? What have you been doing, well, Elizabeth? The questions I'm asking you is, if you were to be in Congress. I, 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 I would be saying right now, we're gonna have an emergency session. We're not leaving here until we solve this problem. We're not gonna blame Trump. We're not gonna blame the executive branch. We're not gonna blame the judicial branch. We didn't do our, our problem. Look, in engineering, you have to find the core issue and you have to solve it. Lawyer lobbyists take 0.001% and try to convince that you're 99%, okay? Lawyer lobbyists are, uh, have this huge history of taking criminals and making them look okay. I'm saying the whole model of a lawyer lobbyist is to take untruths and make them truth. Make situations, always put the blame somewhere else. Let's put the blame on ourselves. That's what I would tell Congress. We are at fault here. Not the executive branch, not the judicial branch. We have not done our jobs. So let's start doing our job. Okay. Quickly, uh, if yep. you get to education. Oh, I do sure. want to talk I'm about sorry. education and taxes. Uh, yes, yeah. I'm sorry. Anne, um, is, and by the way, are, are you the only one on or has anyone else joined us? I haven't heard a chime in. Okay, Anne, go ahead. Hi, Anne. Uh, how are you doing? I just, hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank um, you. I just, you know, you're, you have a lot of, you're saying that you're very supportive of Trump. And as you talk about your, what you say is your American journey, an immigrant, somebody of color, a scientist, all those three seem to be villainized by the Trump administration. And I'm just curious, um, one, were your parents already um, engineers and mathematicians before they got here, or did they, were they able to avail themselves of that education once they got here? And two, how do you reconcile what you're talking about um, with the policy of of the current government administration? Yeah, and I, th I think it's a great, great question. So look, it goes back to what Radic, I'm sorry, asked earlier. You know, the number two issue on the Gallup polls which I watch, it, it's an amazing poll if you see it. Number one was governance, um, Anne, and the number two issue was racism. For far too long in this country, we have bounded racism by, by a set of people who define racism or segregation or discrimination by the, de the Democrats have owned it by saying, you're a racist, you're against immigrants, if you use these words, um, and by the way, you're not racist, we change the name of Yawkey Way or we don't carry the Confederate flag, all these ceremonial things. And then the, the establishment Republicans have, don't want to talk about racism, right? If you talk about racism, then you, you, you want to deny the fact that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, I do have a definition of racism, and, and Donald Trump is not the racist. He's not the racist. Let me tell you, because that's what, the core of what you're talking about is... Who are you talking about? Maybe Stephen Miller? Is that... Well, well, no, I'm talking about Donald Trump is not a racist, okay? I'm talking about the real racism in America is the fact that we have used race to basically pit poor blacks against poor whites. That's what's going on. The average net worth of a black in Boston is eight bucks, okay? Thank you to the agenda of inclusivity and diversity. That's what we've delivered. And if you talk about a poor white in this country, you talk about the fact their infant mortality rate relative to other developed nations is accelerating, and you talk about the fact that they have three times the national opioid average, then you're called a white supremacist. I'm talking about Shivaya Dure, who's gone through the immigrant journey, and as a person of color has a definition of racism, which really goes at the heart of it. My definition of racism is creating race war, using people for your personal agenda, for political and economic advancement. Elizabeth Warren did that when she claimed she was 
you know, Native American. The Republicans do that. Certain very, very racist talk show hosts pointed at poor blacks because they want to keep, keep this division. And there's a larger definition of racism, which sociologists have talked about, about viewpoints. My journey, Anne, and the view I have may not, you, you, you probably can't even be in my shoes to understand how can a guy like this you know, be positive for Trump, be against Monsanto, be against the Paris Accords. This doesn't compute. Well, because my journey... I'm just talking about... I'm just talking about the immigrants. I am. That's what I'm talking about. Well, 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 Don, um, well, Donald Trump... He seems to be targeting... And I'm trying to understand the meritocracy that you're talking about. Well, uh, let me just tell you... John Kelly talked about how people who can come here um, with low skills don't usually... aren't able to assimilate. I'm I'm not sure whether your parents came... And then got their education. No, let me talk to you. Let me talk. Extremely successful. You go against anything, um, you know, that sentiment. Go against that sentiment. No. Wait, so let me. So I'm just trying to understand what is the meritocracy and how is it the same as what um, the Trump administration is talking about? Well, I think the Trump, I don't, I think what we're talking about here is one of the fundamental values of this country called hard work. That you work right. hard and you achieve. So let me, since you brought up my parents, my mother was, uh, father ran away when he was, when she was nine. She was left literally homeless. And somehow that woman decided that she was going to get educated. There's a, a amazing picture of my mother with 40 men and this little dark skinned Indian woman on the corner. Well, how did she do that? That's a question. Well, it was something called guts and nerve that she decided that. And my father came from war-torn Burma where he, his first book was under a mango tree when he was 12 years old, and he became an engineer in India, unheard of. And my mom became a mathematician before they came here. So they brought, India got some of the brilliant, I would say, gut grit of India. And they came here, then my mother took computer science courses here. At night she would take, you know, she would work in a mill with asbestos, that's how she died. And then she would work, and then she would take three trains to take computer science programming. So they taught me the value of hard work. Not Jeff Deal, who lies and got expelled from high school, Elizabeth Warren, who lies. That's why I have a distaste. So when you talk about Donald Trump, I think he's trying to talk about you work hard. People play by the rules. And I don't know what problem people have. And by the way, Donald Trump Jr. took a picture with me. Elizabeth Warren threw me off the debate stage. So you tell me who's a racist? Elizabeth Warren is a racist. The Republican mass GOP establishment is a bunch of racists. That's who, so stop calling Donald Trump racist. Because the racism I'm talking about. No, no, but that's the implied subtext here. That's the implied. Well, there's nothing to reconcile. They're not racist. They support, and they support the American journey, which is you work hard, you work your butt off. I think it's. They they want to support a system where you don't work your butt off. You can lie. You can cheat. You can get on the debate stage because you manipulate. You have a Saudi lobbyist who's your campaign manager who went against 9-11 veterans. You can Photoshop 3D hands. Think about it. Think about, put yourself in my shoes, Anne. I see a world where we've lowered standards, where we let people who are not worthy, who lie and cheat, get on public forums. That's what I see. Why is a guy like me who's worked hard all of his life, I still work hard, and I get up at 5 in the morning, and I go to 12. I run my campaign, and I still run a company. That's what Jefferson did. That's I don't think anybody would argue that you're very successful. Well, well, no, it's not about success. It's about hard work. 
But and, and we are supporting a system more and more which is giving excuses for people and I keep bringing him back to this debate stage. Why am I not on the debate stage, Han? Well, Donald Trump you, ain't stopping that. You know Donald what? Trump ain't building borders to keep me out. Elizabeth Warren and Mass GOP are. And you right. should ask yourself but, that. This is in Massachusetts. 60% independence. But could, I, as the immigrant, I'm being kept off my rightful access to the debate stage. Uh, but let, let, me, let me put it this way. Yeah. I, I think part of what... The wall has been built think, around me. I think part of what... <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think part of what you're hearing, though, is, is, that, is that this isn't... Most politicians, no matter who, no matter what color, once they get in office, it's like, okay, how can I stay in office? It has nothing to do with race. Um, That's true. Falchuk, but, you know, they say John... Evan Falchuk, who is not uh, dark less than 1%. Skin, uh, it, it, who is not dark-skinned, yeah. had the same sort of No, issues. no, but he was allowed on the debate well, stage. Um, Whitey was allowed on the debate stage. Darkie wasn't. I hate to say it that way. Well, they, no, there was a debate. There was a debate. No, and I'm talking about the 2014 debate. Allowed. Yeah, 2014, 2014 debate. debate John Canada. Keller, WBZ, which one we went to protest at. Five white people are on there. Falchuk was pulling. This is facts, man. You guys got to. Yeah, but you, you, um, no, 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 no. But, but Tony, there Tony. There was a debate in Worcester in which he wasn't allowed. Yeah, that, and, yeah, but you know what? So, he did get one debate, did he not? Well, he may have gotten one debate. He got two debates, actually. Is, is he that, got two debates. Is that what you what you had was there wasn't a conspiracy? Um, Tony, why so, are you defending him? I'm not defending anything other than you are. You're bringing up because you're bringing up outliers. Your explanation. When, your explanation is is that the other people are evil, and that's why this is not happening. evil. Not evil. Well, not evil. That's, uh, that, that's, a, that's hearing, a spiritual term. Is, we can talk about that. We've heard somebody called racist. We've heard somebody We should called, use the word racism. And you're, no one's going to stop we've me heard, from using the word racism. They heard, are racist. We've heard somebody called a thief. Um, they they are a thief. The, when you steal a woman's bracelet, I can show you the affidavit. The explanation. I can show so, you the affidavit from the academy where, where he stole a woman's bracelet, and he was expelled, and that is not brought by you. While, while he was being expelled, I was working my butt off. Jeff Deal stole, was thrown out of his second year. Are you going to bring well, that up? But that Let's bring that up. That has something to do with your not being on the debate stage? It does, uh, because I mean, what you're looking at is you're looking at a thief. What we've done is we've allowed people, we, we've lowered the standards so much, you have to be a thief, you have to collude. You should have been where Lewis and I were. We had 40, excuse me, we had 40 tickets, legitimate tickets, to go to a debate. We were not allowed to go in there, Tony. It's unlawful stopping of us. And what you saw was Jeff Deal's campaign manager, Elizabeth, and we have it on tape. They're colluding with the police. Keep them out. But you were out there also sitting in the street. No, no, this was, this was, was no, no, there's two debates, WBZ, we went there Mm -hmm. with our things, when Elizabeth Warren came, I did a civil disobedience, I stopped in front Mm -hmm. of her car, okay, we're talking about the Springfield debate, where my father, 85 year old father, went out in the cold at 6am, he got tickets, he got tickets, 15 of us got legitimate tickets. Wasn't there some sort of, um... I'm telling you the facts. In the debate? No, 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 that was after we were not allowed. We went up. And when they saw all of us, Warren's campaign manager, Deal's campaign manager colluded with the Springfield police who had no right to even stop us. And, because and the Springfield mayor is, is part of the mob. You, okay, that's you, what he's part of. You think this had something to do with your race, not the fact that you were somebody No, 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 it had to do with both. Let me define, remember I said there's two aspects to racism. It's color now, and in America it's about viewpoints, right? 
frankly, myself, Lewis, and Michelle, and people, we're, we're of the same race because we, it's called viewpoint discrimination. It's epigenetic also. We've come to certain conclusions. So they don't want on that debate stage people of certain viewpoints on there. What we've discussed today is Monsanto. Was there one question on Monsanto? Was there one question on free speech? Was there one question on student loans? Was there one question about lowering the cost of health care? Was there one question of GPOs? Okay. No. Oh, okay, but we're spending a lot of time about what... Uh, no, no, but I'm saying... You wanted to get to uh, education. I want to talk, I want to talk about education. Because look, we've got to wrap this up. Yeah, so what I want to say is, look, we have real solutions to real problems. That's what our campaign's about. And, and the people of Massachusetts in this country deserve real solutions to real problems. Not problems that, as you said, divide us, Tony. That's what they create us. Let's talk about real solutions to real problems. I've shared with you stuff that we have on healthcare, a number of very tangible solutions. We've talked about defense, we've talked about innovation. I believe that we should ensure that private equity and VC money goes everywhere, that it's not concentrated around that one mile radius around Kendall Square. And there's legislation that we can do to support that. Let's talk about education. Students are going, you know, a parent gets their student into a, a university. The university tuition keeps rising and rising. The student gets in. The, the student's parents obviously want their kids to get in, and the student loan companies um, give the university the loan. Okay, the student never really gets that loan. It goes from the loan company to the university, and more importantly, we underwrite those loans. Our tax dollars underwrite those loans. Now it gets even more interesting. When these students sign those papers, they are not allowed to go bankrupt, right? They can't go bankrupt. If I was giving as a banker a loan to each one of you with a business, each one of you has a right to go bankrupt. What does that mean? I make careful decisions. Hey, Radic is doing a business that's about shrimp farming. Um, you're doing a business about, I don't know, making paper mache. That's not going to go anywhere. I, I am going to fund him and not you because I know if I make bad investments, my bank is going to tank. We need to allow students to go bankrupt if they want to because ultimately there's a $1.8 trillion bubble that we're all gonna be underwriting, okay? The second thing is, on education is, we need more Votech schools, and I cannot emphasize this. We need to also give, I'll move to taxes. You know, I learned a lot because of mentors. I learned how to paint from a Yugoslavian painter. I learned how to do landscaping from an Italian immigrant who really taught me amazing skills about excellence. Kids need to be given that opportunity and there's a lot of small businesses, I'm sure, in Worcester who would love to take interns and students. If they do, they should be given anywhere between $2,500 to $5,000. I'm talking about any type of business, okay? To, should be given $2,500 to $5,000 tax credits because we need to create mentoring and internships and apprenticeships. I was very fortunate that a guy called Dr. Michelson at Rutgers Medical School gave me the opportunity to use all of his infrastructure. He taught me amazing values that still stand to today. And let's talk about institutions like Harvard, big endowments. We have taken major universities before they were supposed to be hallowed halls where you went to do research, you had academic free speech. They've become essentially money-making hedge funds. Harvard is a $50 billion hedge fund. One needs to simply look at their balance sheet. And this is not a joke. They run a $2 billion thing called a university. Two years ago, you know, six of their hedge fund managers got paid $58 million. What are they actually running? They take money from government grants, they take money from tuition, they take money from donors, and they basically um, run a hedge fund. I say you should tax them, their hedge fund profits at a full 20% rate, which all hedge funds do. Use that money to fund infrastructure, to fund Votech schools. What about MIT? MIT too, all of them. 
Uh, you know, look, so, unlike so, Elizabeth Warren, you'll see me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. I organize food service workers. Elizabeth Warren, while at Harvard, never, ever protested. And the reason this is important, the reason guys like me or women like me or women, other women who have skills need to be electricians and plumbers because we actually could see the future. Let's talk about AI and robotics. I actually know how to build AI software. I, I've done it. I understand the implications at a deep level. You know, Franklin and Jefferson and Washington understood because they were surveyors and, you know, uh, inventors. When you look at AI and robotics, we're on the verge of something quite uh, remarkable, but also quite, that could be quite devastating to the working people in this country. And you need people from a systems understanding which can educate our senators. Scott Adams, who writes Dilbert, you may know him. Mm -hmm. Scott said, you know, Shiva is the kind of people we need. Well, right now we have Rand Paul. He's a different stack. Tech, you know, he's going to bring viewpoints that can really educate our, you know, aging senators there. 3D printing. You know, there are, I want to just give you these as examples. There are new technologies emerging that if we don't understand the implications of that, we're not going to put the right legislation. When software came in the 70s, the career politicians didn't even create a patent system for software. That's why I was screwed. I could only use copyright. Okay? In 1980, the Computer Act of 1980 allowed you to use copyright to protect software. It was only in 1994 did the Federal Court of Appeals recognize software was a digital machine. Now, I would have seen that. So when I look at things like 3D printing, when I look at robotics, when I look at AI, these new things, there's whole new ways. When you look at a Facebook and a Google, they're running circles around legislators because people don't understand the implications of what their technology means and how they're going to actually own you talk about monopolies, these are going to be such hegemonic monopolies that people have never seen. And the level of control that they have, and that's what we're on the verge of. We're on the verge, when you talk about Trump, you know, the Renaissance took place in the midst of massive chaos, massive plague, and we're at that same point here. And you need people like me who can help educate people, senators who can help them see through this to win the future for you, win the future for your kids. That's what our campaign's about, Tony. It's really about real solutions to real problems. And that's why denying me access to the debate stage is such a sin. Because Americans need to know, wow, what's gonna happen? So how else are you getting your message out? Well, you know how we're getting our Apart message out? something like this. Well, we're getting our message out. That's why it's so, that's why we're at 50% visibility. We're on the ground. This guy's on the ground. I'm on the ground putting in stakes. She's on the ground who works as a full-time cytotech. We don't pay one person on our staff. It's totally volunteer. We don't have, as I say, horrible people like Holly Robichaud, who's a Saudi lobbyist on our staff, okay? Who's a snake and a well, serpent. You know what, you're, you're going No, down. seriously, we and have- This is one of the things that affects your credibility. Because, no, no, that affects uh, your because, credibility in your eyes, not to the working people, into, Tony. It turns into, instead of being about, here's what we can do. But Tony, that's your value uh, judgment. What you're doing, what you're, you're not going to tell me how to speak, though, Tony. No. no, I'm not going to tell you how to speak. I'm just telling you We're at 50% visibility is that that hurts, with all the horrible talking hurts, and the non-statesmanlike stuff. That hurts your credibility. That's I don't think all I'm so. saying. Look, um, the Globe called, said they're not endorsing me because I called Warren a racist, demonic, fake Indian. Well, that's you know that was their basis. They don't want to look at the fact that I have four degrees from MIT, actually created jobs. They have to choose something like that. Everyday working and people don't I'm talk so you, what perfectly, What I'm telling Tony. you here to your face is, is that 
is that that's one thing that I think uh, hurts you. Um, I'm on because who? it's not I'm on about who, the white liberals. What, it's not about what you can accomplish. It becomes about let's let's knock down everybody else. No, we, those people do need to be knocked down because well, you guys don't do the knocking down. So I have to do your guys' job. Well, I have to do this dirty job of knocking down people that the media doesn't knock down. Why isn't the fact that Jeff Deal photoshopped a picture and is not? In fact, you guys promote it. And you don't want to call me Dr. Shiva Ayadure when I deserve that title, but you're okay with putting chairman when he's not the chairman. Think about that, Tony. Think about your own hypocrisy. Well, uh, okay. Uh, you're attributing things to us that we You do. You call him the Trump co-chair. He's not. Uh, the other guy, Patriot okay. Ledger, who, and you need to talk to him. We've given him all the documents. We have the actual letter. He's not the Trump co-chair, and you guys keep saying that. Why? Because you want to create a false opposition. Okay. Um... I, I think we have to wrap it up. Well, uh, let me say some closing statements. Well, uh, uh, we've been we've been talking now. Okay. Well, I, I think in closing, least, you know, our hours. our campaign is about real solutions to real problems. We have about twenty videos people can go see on our website, which goes to each one of these, be it healthcare, be it cannabis, be it robotics, and that's what pe that's what we offer people. And it's a, a broad array of solutions, which are about winning the future for people in the 21st century. It's not about raise and lower taxes. By the way, we don't produce enough people who even pay taxes. 10% of the people pay 80% of the taxes. We need to have more people working. We need to increase wages. And that's going to come from people who can see what's going on in the 21st century. The same guy who saw our emails going or what we're doing with Cytosolve to radically you know, do drug development, which is this company that I have. I don't need to be doing this, Tony. We have a couple billion dollar company we're going after every major disease and I believe the people of Massachusetts deserve someone like me an in innovator a worker an educator none I, I don't I look at these two guys what have they done have they invented anything have they created jobs zero and you guys need to highlight that I really hope journalism starts doing journalism because you guys are gonna become irrelevant if you don't thank okay. you thank